0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So there's a couple things to talk about before getting into the material for this podcast. Um, I've posted grades for the Unit 1 discussions and the Unit 1 writing assignment on Canvas, so make sure that you check those out. Um, The discussions were overwhelmingly so good. I mean, there were a lot there was a lot of thought put into them. I could tell. there were questions that you asked, things I would never think of. And you took the discussions in places I would have never gone. Um, but it's things that made everybody think in different ways that maybe they hadn't thought about this stuff before. so that was really good. Keep up the good work there. Um, there was one thing I wanted to address. There were a few people that posted either nothing or a short response like first, and then they posted their response to the initial question, let's try to avoid doing this as much as possible because I've set that up intentionally not to give you access to everybody else's answers because I want to know what you really think. All right, and when you do that, it gives you access to the other responses, and it makes it difficult for me to know whether you did it on purpose to see the responses or not. And so moving forward, points will be taken off if that is done okay so i need to to put that out there right away the um unit one writing assignments there were only nine so that means unit two writing assignments i'm going to have a whole lot to grade um but those grades are also posted and as with most assignments the grade range is you know between a's and c's um, for the most part but you know had some that were really really good and others that could have uh you know been a bit more in detail or more directly answering the question, so make sure you're checking out the comments on those. Um, So this upcoming week, you've got the Unit 2 discussions that are – do The first post is uh, due this upcoming Wednesday night, and then Sunday for the other two. You've also got your Unit 2 writing assignments due next Sunday as well. So in these, you're being asked to talk about the theories of development and how they're related to explaining the relative economic performance of the West and the rest of the world since the Great Divergence. Okay, so this last week we talked about the Great Divergence. This week we're talking about theories of development. All right, how can we explain why countries develop economically and why some other countries don't? All right, so in this paper you're going to want to take aspects from last week and the great divergence and combine them with stuff from this week when we talk about these theories of development and things that uh, like how we measure development and the different ways we do that. So, the best papers are going to combine aspects from weeks 3 and 4. And also make sure that you're getting into the cases. All right, last week you had the U.S., the U.K., and Japan. This week the cases in- include countries that were even later developers, um, like China, India, Nigeria, and Brazil. Okay, so there's enough stuff there to really take these theories and apply them and, you know, do the same ones that explain maybe growth in the US and UK, explain some of the more modern or more recent countries that have developed, such as China. Okay, so so think about them that way. And also make sure you're answering all parts of the question. Don't leave part of the question unanswered, because that is part of the requirements. But that's all for the housekeeping items. And here is episode four of The Populist. <laughs> Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Populist. So last week, we talked about the Great Divergence and explained or discussed why we started to see uh, European and Western countries grow economically while the rest of the world was pretty stagnant. And this week, we're going to continue this discussion in talking more directly about development and what has kind of happened since then, and especially here in the twenty or in the twentieth century into the twenty-first century? Okay, so the outline for this episode is to define development, what it is, and then how do we measure development? Because there are different ways to do that. Uh, next, we'll talk about where did uh, development happen and in what sequence, and then. We will get into what. how can we explain why development happens, Okay, and we will discuss theories of development, which ties directly into the reflection question for this week. Okay, so what is development? Your book defines development as a process by which a society changes or advances, often measured in terms of economic growth, but also can be measured in terms of quality of life, standard of living, access to freedoms and opportunities, and sustainability, among others. Okay, so it's pretty broad, but we have certain ways that we have measured development. And these, I think, have gotten better as time has gone on. Okay, so how how can we measure development? All right, the most common way is by measuring economic growth. GDP, which is gross domestic product. Uh, GDP per capita, you just take the total gross domestic product and divided by the population or gni which is gross nato- gross national income okay but what are other ways of understanding how we can measure development all right another common way is to look at poverty and how impoverished states are okay so according to the world bank we've got three categories of poverty Extreme poverty is your most severe. People are living on less than $1.90 a day. This used to be a dollar a day, and then it went to $1.25. But they've adjusted this for purchasing power using 2011 dollars because the value of money changes, and they've settled on a universal um, measure of a1.90 a day. All right. And in here, people are unable to meet their most basic needs, food, clothing, basic health care, education. And the statistics on this are interesting because in 2015, there were roughly 736 million people that would be classified as in extreme poverty. Okay, And that's a lot of people. But here's the interesting part is this is down from 1.85 billion in 1990 and even more interesting is when you think about the total population of the world. So today we have a little over 7 billion people, maybe 7.5 billion, and 736 million people are are in extreme poverty. In 1990, the total population of the world was only 5.3 billion, and 1.85 billion were in extreme poverty. So we've made some significant strides in eliminating this absolute, destitute, bottom rung of poverty. Obviously, not completely there, but better than we were 30 years ago for sure. Okay. And this is found largely in sub-Saharan Africa. There's 413 million out of the 736 million that we would find in sub-Saharan Africa. And these are the poorest parts of the world. Burundi, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Central African Republic, Liberia, places like that. Okay. And this is also found in East Asia and the Pacific, where we've got 47 million people, and in parts of Central Asia, there's 7 million people, and we think Afghanistan. Okay, the next category of poverty is moderate poverty, and the World Bank defines this as making between $1.90 and $3.10 a day. Again, this is adjusted for purchasing power. Okay, and here you're barely meeting the basic needs and nothing else. All right, there's definitely no cars or luxuries, but people have basic essentials. And this is found predominantly in Latin America, which only has about 10% extreme poverty. Okay, so kind of this middle rung where you're you're able to get by, but you know, you're definitely not living it up. And then the last category of poverty is relative poverty, and this you find a lot in uh, the first world states or the rich states or the core countries of the world, whichever classification system you want to use. Um, and it's relative because it's different in each society. I mean, in the United States, we our poverty line um, in 2015 was $12,060. Okay. But keep in mind how big of a difference this is. I mean, Yeah, twelve thousand and sixty dollars isn't much, but you you can put food on the table, especially if you're you're able to um, have family around or you're sharing housing, things like that. Okay, but in the U.S., I mean, it's very different too. I mean, because you've got places in Appalachia that are see some higher levels of poverty for sure. Um, Places in inner cities, so you know even there there is this poverty in the united states but i think this is there's a world of difference between the poverty we see and residents of haiti or burundi that are living in extreme poverty okay but the point is that poverty is one way that we can look at development and say okay well how many of your people are extremely poor um, or suffer from moderate poverty or are you basically dealing with relative poverty if that's the case then your society is likely more developed than a country that is dealing with large levels of extreme poverty Okay, the next way that we can go about uh, measuring development is by social outcomes and human development. Okay, things like life expectancy, living longer is better. Infant mortality, less deaths of children under the age of one is better. Literacy rates, obviously the higher the rates the better. Okay, and then uh, your book t- also talks about the Human Development Index, and this aggregates the three aspects. So you're looking at life expectancy, are you living a long and healthy life, education, and your standard of living, which they measure using gross national income. Okay, so we can look at this and say, okay, well, well where do you fall on these uh These indicators: life expectancy, infant mortality, literacy rates, or education, standard of living, and say, okay, well, the higher up you are, the more developed your country is. All right, another way to look at this is gender relations and racial and ethnic identities. All right, some accounts of development emphasize that development is not achieved insofar as inequalities based on gender, race, and ethnicity persist. So from this perspective, even if a country has a high GDP, it still faces development difficulties if some groups are disadvantaged, all right? And so if we break this down, so gender matters for two main reasons in development, all right? Development is considered to occur only when the same economic and social opportunities are available to both men and women, all right? And empowering women helps with all these other aspects of development. All right, Access to education is crucial because um, then you're able to show people that they've got opportunities beyond staying home and raising children. All right, It's not that anything is wrong with that, but if that's the only option people have, then you're taking basically half of the population and saying you're going to not be economically active or not contribute to economic growth in many ways. All right, so access to education breaks this barrier down, all right? And that also provides opportunities to uh, participate in the economy, to do things like starting businesses, okay? And you get more economic activity, you know, you get people that want to start businesses or want to work and do these things um, that, that... help raise GDP, that, um, you know, help the standard of living go up, all right? And then this all, this, all of this is providing opportunities for more income, and so we found some interesting things in the research that's been done on this, and it, it states that women generally make more resources available for nutrition, family health care, and children's education, all right, and that, in general, women are more likely to invest in the family than men. Now, obviously, these are very broad terms, and it's an on average, this is what we're going to expect. But you could also see how empowering women to make their own choices and not being um, stuck in societies where they really have no opportunity outside of getting married and having children, um, it's going to benefit the next generation as well. Okay, um, so then the next part of this category of the gender relations and racial and ethnic identities is racial and ethnic inequality. And this one's pretty straightforward. I mean, if, you, if groups are systematically disadvantaged and not allowed to participate in the economy, development can be seen as incomplete. I mean— Think of extreme cases like South African apartheid. But there's also other places. I mean, in the U.S., we see that GDP per person, when you break it down uh, by race and ethnicity, it varies. All right. Now, the reasons for this are, are not simple, and the solutions are even less simple. But it's it's showing that this is another way that we can we can measure how developed a country is. Okay, so even places like the United States that are considered at the very top rung of development still can make vast improvements on where they're at. Okay, another way to measure um, development is looking at satisfaction and happiness. You know, what's all this stuff with just stuff and uh, money and how much you get and what the next thing you can buy and economic activity. What about people being um, happy with their life and satisfied? So scholars in economics and different fields are starting to emphasize happiness as a goal of policy. Um, And some have advocated for aiming for the development of gross national happiness rather than gross national product. Okay, so, so we're not talking about just consumption as I got to just a second ago, but uh, having free time, social status, do you have strong familial and friendship ties? Um, I, I, there's some pretty disturbing research about uh, the stuff coming out about uh, the internet and cell phones and constantly being connected and we're more connected but lonelier than ever. Um, so, I mean, is that, is having all this stuff and being able to buy things with the tap of your smartphone screen, is it worth it if you're not having friends and your, you know, your family life isn't very good or you don't have a spiritually fulfilling life? Um, so some scholars have started to look at this, uh, but it can be tricky to measure because it relies a lot on surveys and survey data can it can be accurate, but it also has some aspects of it that aren't as accurate as other data. Okay, so there are also other measures people take into account for the possible costs of growth and change. All right, and here we, we're getting into things like cultural development and sustainability. Okay, so in cultural development, um, one of the core things is retaining and deepening one's culture. Okay, and this isn't simply for indigenous people, but definitely includes them, but also some uh, developed modern states. All right, um, w- the loss of traditional culture due to economic growth can be a big problem in places where that is really really important. All right, what good is development if it means that you only get to eat at McDonald's and buy things from American Eagle, but the culture that has held your community together is disintegrating. Okay, so this is really obvious when we look at things like our giant corporations going into developing countries and on the corner is Taco Bell and Burger King and H&M and, and all of these stores that come in and destroy a culture that has has been there for a long time. But this also happens in places in the U.S. or in France. I mean, in France, their, their rural culture and farming and things like that are super important to them. So is all this development economically and focusing solely on economic growth worth it if you're losing some of the things that people find more meaningful in their life. okay. So some scholars have started to ask these questions and started to take into account these these costs that come in with uh, growth and change, and have have started to note that it's not always positive because you've got higher economic growth. Um, I think that there was there's a study done that showed, Even income in the United States, something like you're going to be happier as you go up in in your income earnings to about $80,000 per person. After that, the amount of happiness that it brings to your life diminishes. So you get the law of diminishing returns coming in. Okay. Uh, and So so another part of this cultural development is maintaining the right to self-determination. So being able to decide for yourself. Uh, what kinds of things your society partakes in, okay? What kind of values, what kind of norms, traditions, languages? Uh, You know, a lot of places when state formation was going on, they had to bring together multiple groups of people that had different languages and you know, protecting that language is very important. I was just in Ireland um, last fall for a few months doing research. And it's interesting because the, they, they speak English. Everybody speaks English. But on every sign and every uh, you know, announcement on the bus or the train, it was also in Irish. And re- retaining that language is super important for them okay, so so they've got both languages, that English and irish that that are all over the place. Uh, even though people don't really speak Irish that much. Um, you know, it's still culturally important for them to hold on to that. so these these scholars that are emphasizing cultural development as as one of the measures of development would say that that Ireland is is, more highly developed they're they're able to hang on to important aspects of their culture okay so the last of these measures is also takes into account the possible costs of growth and change and that's sustainability all right are you able to maintain a standard of living by conserving resources for future generations? So environmental uh, sustainability. What good is development economically if the land, air, and water are polluted and unusable? So here's another way that we can can look at this, and this is going to vary from country to country, which makes it interesting It makes it a useful measure. Okay, so then the next part of this podcast is going through kind of the sequencing of development. So I mean this is a very broad outline of the sequencing of development. So how did so we we started to see this divergence in the 18th century and it began with Britain. Okay? And we talked obviously talked about this last week. But so Britain starts and, then, and that's kind of uh, late 18th century, so late 1700s. And then by the early to mid-19th century, you start to see France and then the United States. And then by the time you get to the mid to late 19th century, places like Germany, Sweden, and Japan are starting to industrialize. Um, and then by the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, you get... Russia, Canada, Australia. So they're starting this this climb where you're seeing this more sustained economic growth. And then post World War II there were a lot of places that started started on this path. Turkey, Argentina, Mexico, China, India, South Korea. So so it's we see it geographically happening in in different ways, but it kind of starts in Europe and then comes to the US and then Uh, you know, continues in Europe, but then we start to get more places in South America and Asia that are starting to develop. Okay. So, so that's the timing aspect of, of the, of development and, and why it happened. But, but why exactly does development happen? Okay. So obviously the first obvious thing to look at is GDP growth. All right, why do economies grow, diversify, and become more productive and successful? And a lot of people have tended to focus on GDP per capita growth. All right, and this is commonly used in all of the development studies, uh, and it's correlated with other development measures. Okay, so it's not the only important thing, but we see these correlations between GDP growth per capita and better health higher education, less poverty, and higher standards of, of living. Now, obviously, there can be trade-offs for this high growth, as I, I talked about um, just previously. I mean, there's uh, you know talk to people from China who see this tremendous growth, and throughout the 2000s, I mean, they're growing 7%, 10% a year, but the environmental damage that's being done uh, has a lot of people uncomfortable. Okay, or has a lot of people wondering if it's worth it, um, or trying to find solutions to that. Okay? So so that's what the, what we tend to to focus on. But now let's get into the development theories. and And in the broad umbrella of development theories, there's really three categories. So you've got institutions cultural values, and the domestic and international structures. So by institutions, we're talking political and economic. So you're getting into the market and state debate. How much should it be free markets? How much should the state be involved? Um, And this, in a broad sense, is saying that development is determined largely by the actions and decisions of individuals as they're shaped by the institutions and the incentives that those institutions create for behavior. All right. Then the cultural values part of this, is economic behavior is shaped by, or is shaped and constrained by beliefs, values, norms, and habits. So we'll talk about things like civil society, social capital, trust, um, religious difference, differences in value systems. Okay, and then the domestic and international structures, this says that economic outcomes depend on the fundamentally underlying structure of the economy. So we're going to the very core of everything, basic forms of economic production. Okay, how are the means of production and and how that sets up the structure of the system of of production and social classes and, you know, the different cleavages we see in society. But this focuses a lot on social classes and how the way the broader economy is structured creates these social classes. All right. So you're looking at things in this like uh, dependency theory, which also focuses on social classes and geography. Okay. So, so let's get into the institutions, which you know the videos this week talked talk about that. Last week they talked about it as well. And institutions, especially for political scientists, are kind of at the core of many explanations. But obviously, they don't they don't explain everything. All right. So one of the core debates with institutions, and by institutions, um, what I'm what I'm really talking about is the legal rules and social norms that shape behavior of economic actors or of people. Um, Another way to think about this is they're kind of the rules of the game. All right. These are your constitutions, your laws. Um, You know, they can be represented in buildings like the University of Oregon is an institution, but the certain rules that say you have to complete so many hours of this class, or so if you're a political science major, you have to take so many of 100 level, 200 level, 300 level. Like those could be considered rules of the game, and that's going to structure how you decide to take classes, what classes you do decide to take, things like that. Just like tax laws and um, oh, tariffs. And import like import taxes, which are tariffs, um, they're going to structure decisions that businesses make. So, that's broadly what we're talking about when we talk about institutions. Okay, but inside this institutional debate, one of the biggest ones is the role of the market versus the role of the state. All right, and your articles this week, the Coley and Friedman articles, are getting at this debate. Coley says the state is more involved, and that is that's been key, especially to people develop or people states developing after World War II. Um, Friedman is saying, look, you need free markets in order to. In order to develop, and there's certain barriers that you need to overcome. So, the details are in in those. So, but basically, the the pro market argument is that free and independent markets lead to more efficient allocation of resources. People are going to maximize their own gains, they're going to put their resources to the best use that they find, and that's way better than having a government tell people what to do. Okay, the state led market counters this saying that development requires a state actor capable of coordinating economic activities, long-term planning, and supplying adequate capital. Okay, I want to go back to the the pro-market because I want to be clear that the pro-market argument isn't that government shouldn't exist. They're saying that government should make sure there's not monopolies and should provide public goods and keep the peace and law and order, but they shouldn't really be too Involved in the economy because then that's going to distort the incentive structure that the market creates. Okay, but with the state led market, they're saying that the state needs to be more involved because you need to be able to. Put large amounts of capital into big infrastructure projects. You need to have some kind of long term plan and you need to coordinate some ac- economic activity. You just can't leave it all up to the market. Okay, so really what we see, and, and this is interesting, if you go back and, and read the um, case studies of the United States and the UK from the from last week in the textbook, you know, they kind of ask some of these questions in those case studies. All right. But post-World War II, state-led markets were popular. Reconstruction of Europe was largely state-led, not market-led. I mean, if you really think about it, the only place that was industrialized that wasn't destroyed post-World War II was the United States. Japan was destroyed. Europe with laid in ruins. So, I mean, we get things like the Marshall Plan, but you also get heavy state involvement in the rebuilding of Germany and France and Belgium and places like that in Italy. All right. Um, but the state-led markets being popular post-World War II, not only in Europe, but you also see this in Japan. Um, then you see this also in South Korea, which Kohli talks about, and Taiwan. So these success stories happened because of state involvement. Not only because of state involvement, but the state was heavily involved. Um, there's a great book called MIDI and the. Um, uh, and the, the Japanese miracle it talks about, I'll, I'll post a, a link to the book because it really goes into showing the intricacies of how Japan was able to develop post-World War II and just the structure of how everything worked. Um, so, so roughly from the late 40s, 50s into the 1970s, the state-led market model was very popular. And then in the 1980s and 90s, free market ideology becomes more prominent, um, largely associated with uh, neoliberalism and uh, the Washington consensus is something that Was was written then. But this is basically saying that liberalizing trade and capital flow. So basically opening up trade, allowing capital, which would be money, machines, technology, to go between countries, which was new because in the 50s through the 70s, money crossing borders, there were what was called capital control. So the governments controlled how much money could go from, say, the United States to Germany or the United States to the U.K. There were limits on that. And eventually, through time, those limits were um, kind of taken off as governments opened up. All right. So liberalizing trade and capital flows, privatization, so taking state-run businesses. It would be like if uh, the city of Eugene sold eWeb to a private company and said, you run it. And then um, foreign direct investment. This is companies making investments in other countries. This is more like building factories and things like that. Okay, so this started to become more popular in the 80s and 90s. All right, this also advocated for less intervention by the state, and this was pushed by the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and I think when you, if you read the, the literature on the Washington consensus and this free market ideology for development, the less intervention by the state was probably the biggest mistake because even if, if you're already in kind of like a weak state or a weaker state – and you say, okay, well, we're just going to be hands-off. I mean, markets don't just emerge and come out of nowhere. The, the video from last week from, uh, I think it was the PBS video, um, kind of goes into this. And there's a great book, uh, The Great Transformation, by Karl Polanyi. I can list a link to that as well. But showing how the state has to be involved in creating markets to ensure that they actually function like markets. Okay? Because if you just let them go and there's not enough rules um, and there's not enough enforcement of those rules, then you get things like monopolies, insider trading, you get all kinds of corruption. Uh, there's another book. Uh, by a guy named Vogel, who said freer markets, more rules, was the name of the book. I'll, I'll post a link to that as well. Um, but okay, so, so some of the problems that we saw with neoliberalization policies, these more market, pro-market policies came in the, the 80s and 90s. Um, they led to a renewed debate about the role of the state, because the state provides jobs, and if you reduce the role of the state, jobs go away. Potential rises in inequality, and in some instances, um, hyperinflation. I mean, check out Zimbabwe. You know, when you're getting into hundreds of percent of inflation, it just is nightmarish for your economy. Okay, and then so so also pushing back against this free market. Stance was we start to see really high performance from countries like China, South Korea, other East Asian countries that they had high levels of state involvement and still do. I mean, make sure you're reading those case studies in the book. Okay, so what, what this ended up kind of has moved more towards is there needs to be a balance between state involvement and free markets. All right, it can't all be... that the state is doing everything. Okay. We saw how that worked out with the Soviet Union. I mean, look at North Korea, you know, if the state does everything, then it leads to really bad outcomes. But also if you just let markets go, it leads to bad outcomes as well. Okay. So you need to get this balance between state involvement and free markets. All right. And many of the countries, especially in East Asia, and I guess Ireland would be another example that, that, developed later. They were very poor going into the eighties and now one of the richest countries in the world, um, even after their financial crisis. Um, but many of these countries focused on export led growth. Okay. So exporting things to the world market. And there's a video this week, make sure that you watch that because it breaks down how that works and also the good and the bad that come with that. All right. Um, So moving on, so institutions are also important beyond just, well, how much state involvement and how much market should should be controlling or should we have in the economy, all right? And as I said before, think of institutions as the legal rules, the social norms that shape the behavior of people, okay? Your rules of the game, what are the things that are going to incentivize people's actions. All right. And under this, there's a few different types of institutionalism. Okay. Institutionalism being kind of a, a term for scholars that use institutions to do the explaining of why things happen the way they do. All right. And this your book talks about new institutionalism, and it's simply describing a move towards using institutions to explain outcomes in a lot of its political science, economics, sociology. I mean, other fields use it, but those are the three big ones. Okay, so property rights, taxes, tariffs, How do these structure not only the ways that people spend their money spend their money but that businesses invest and the decisions they make and who they hire and how much research and development they do? Okay, so that that would be some of the things that they think about. Also, like, you know, what's the structure of the banking sector? Is it stock markets where it tends to incentivize short-term thinking, or is it bank loans? Where, you know, like in Germany, they generally and traditionally have had banks that pair with their companies and they can allow like longer term investments. And there's trade offs to these, but those are some of the things that they're going to look at. Okay. And then, so under this new institutionalism, there's two real kinds of institutional institutional analysis that people use. And the first one is rational institutionalism, which emphasizes kind of economic logics of um, maximization, like uh, you're going to maximize your utility. Um, you're going to do the rational thing, given whatever position that you're in within the institutional framework. Okay, so this tends to, to emphasize that people are going to, to self-maximize in their decision-making. Okay, um, and then you've also got historical institutionalism that says it, it's not necessarily that they're not rational institutionalists, but they're saying that timing and sequence of events matters. Okay, And they use this term, path-dependent. So changes are path-dependent. And path-dependent, in the broadest sense, is getting at this, uh, you know, once you're on a course of action, uh, it becomes difficult to change once you've started down a path. Okay, that's why people... With Obamacare, we're saying, okay, we need to make it to a certain point because then there have been so much money and so much time and so many resources invested in it that it will be really difficult to pull back from, okay, and obviously that – is still kind of in limbo, but I mean another way to think about this is in your personal life. I mean, how many people have have dated somebody and you know it goes along for a while and you know it's kind of to the point where okay, if it goes further, you're in that maybe for the long haul. So depending on what you want, you either end it or decide that you want to be in it for the long haul. So once you make that decision, it's much more difficult to pull back. Okay, and a great example of path dependency, maybe the most common, is the QWERTY keyboard that we use, okay? It's definitely not the most efficient The it was created back when we were using typewriters, and the keys were actually put in spots to ensure that the, um, all the little metal thing that came up and hit the ribbon, that they didn't get tangled, so you can look this up. There's other keyboards that actually are much more efficient when it comes to where the, the letters are placed, but we started using the QWERTY keyboard. So many people, that's just what they use. It would be really expensive and really time-consuming to go back on that. All right. And then so the one of the, the best examples from your book or of scholarship emphasizing this historical institutional uh, point of view, there's a little blurb in your book. It's the Colonial Origins of Comparative Development by Asimoglu, Johnson, and Robinson that they show how colonization patterns and whether colonies were built for extraction, Okay, the way that maybe Brazil or Mexico, when, when they were colonized Especially in Mexico, they literally went and made um, railroads or roads that went straight to where the silver or gold was and straight back to the ocean and bypassed any of the cities. So it was only for extraction. So the kinds of institutions you would need to to create to rule over a population like that are not going to be the same – institutions where if you go to colonize a place like North America where you can actually live. And they, they kind of make an argument that it, it really depends on um, whether or not the colonizers believed they could live there or not, or if they wanted to live there. So living in the tropics was much more difficult than living in a place that's much more temperate climate. All right, Massachusetts, if you don't have if you don't have air conditioning and you're you're thinking okay it's 1600s, 1700s Massachusetts is much better place to live climate wise than a tropical jungle where it's hot and humid and muggy all the time okay so i hope this makes sense uh, i know i've kind of rambled on a little bit but um, you know if things aren't entirely clear cuz i did go over a lot you know Ask a question below this on the discussion on Canvas. You know, that's what that's there for. Hey, you mentioned this. I wasn't uh, sure what you were talking about or this wasn't entirely clear. Post that on there and, uh, you know, we can help each other out. Okay, so the next groups of theories that that we have are cultural development. All right, so here we're talking about things like civil society, um, social capital, and trust. So the the, kind of the the big theory in this is that higher higher levels of trust and capital create incentives for development. All right, and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville was big when he came to the United States and did a study saying cultural characteristics and norms affect a society's development. I mean, he was basically seeing like, you know, the associational life or the um, social life of people in the U.S. was very rich. People were joining clubs. People were involved in the community. And that was his explanation for why America was developing and was doing so well. Okay, so, you know, an active civic life, joining clubs. This could be Elks Club, Kiwanis, um, the Eagles Clubs, places like that. It could be other organizations. I mean, today, think like Sierra Club, um, different environmental clubs. Um, Just being involved is, is really important. And then, so then these cultural differences between countries can help explain why some develop and others don't, is the cultural argument, okay? Um, The higher level of trust in a society, the greater the social capital. And by social capital, what we mean is rich associational networks, which these are basically social networks, not, not Facebook and Twitter, although they may need to start including those, but, like, what are your social network's in real life, in front of you. Okay, and Fukuyama has a little blurb about this in the book. Another great place to look is Robert Putnam has written, he wrote a book talking about the development of um, Italy, and it's called Making Democracy Work, and he talks about social capital, but he also wrote a book about the United States called "Bowling Alone, and it was written in like 1998 or 99, and he was saying that Our social capital is in decline because less people are joining these networks and these clubs and these organizations and we're having fewer ties to each other. We're feeling increasingly isolated. And so he's saying that that is having a a negative effect on the democracy and also on on, uh, economic On economic development and economic activity, so so within this, uh, there the book talks about three things that contribute to social capital, and that is trust, which is defined as a belief in the good conduct of others, and then the book mentions bonding capital. So the density of ties, kind of what I was just saying before, the density of ties, your friendships, your social networks, your family, your organizational networks, how more densely those are related and stronger those ties is going to be better for the economy. All right. And then there's another kind of capital called bridging capital. So you this is when networks extend to new people in new places. So you have yours or your community has its, its network of, of associations and friendships and things like that. But there needs to be capital that bridges that network to other networks. Okay. Creating an even larger network of people that are connected to each other in different ways. So The cultural development would say that higher levels of trust and these different kinds of capital, both bonding and bridging capital, these create incentives for development. Okay, that's the heart of the cultural development argument. So moving on from that, the next theory that falls under the cultural development umbrella is religion. So this theory says that religious worldviews shape incentives. All right, and the relationship of r- religious views and religion to political views may operate through intervening variables. Okay, so religion is not directly responsible for events that we see, but it, and not, not in an A causes B kind of way, but the events in the world and the challenges people face are filtered and interpreted through these religious lenses. All right, so the... Uh, there was a great book written by Max Weber talking about the Protestant work ethic all right and the way that he described this as working is that Protestants in northern Europe and Catholics in southern Europe there was this uh, kind of a divergence in development the, the north was richer and the South was poorer and so so what explains this and and he goes into how the the Protestant tradition viewed wealth as being a sign that you were more religious, or you were in the favor of God, or you were closer to God. Okay, so it incentivized people to work harder and to accumulate wealth and in order to show that they were religious and that they were closer to God. Through time, the religion part kind of fell away, but the culture of accumulating wealth, and that's just how you live your life, and it's what you do, that stuck around. So the religion fell apart, or not didn't fall apart, it fell to the wayside, but the people continued working really hard and putting in long hours, and this work ethic was explained by Weber as being the reason that, uh, the North ended up being wealthier than the South and taking it back one step further. The reason that work ethic was there was because of these religious, um, these religious motivations. Okay. So it, it saw, people saw this as, they had a worldly calling, and it led to this strong work ethic. It led to thriftiness and not waste. It promoted this individualism that I must do this for myself in order to save my soul. Um, and individualism promoted building with wealth rather than redistribution. Okay, so so that's one way that religion shapes worldviews. And the intervening variable means that there's some bigger cause some bigger event it's filtered through the intervening variable which is described as religion and then there's also been arguments that things like confucian values so a strong belief in order and authority respect for the state and for religion um Some have even hypothesized that Muslim faith may hinder development restriction. They've got restrictions on lending. Um, You know, they're not allowed to lend with interest, so it tends to uh, disincentivize that kind of economic activity. Um, You know, the opposition to globalization, different edicts that restrict science and arts. But what what we've really found with religion, so we've got, got all of these... All of these different things that I've just put out there is that the degree of religion may matter more than the type of religion. Any place that is really, really high in the amount of people practicing a religion and true believing um, may matter more than simply, oh, uh, well, Christianity. Produces This outcome or Catholicism produces this outcome or Islam produces this outcome. It's how much of that religion permeates society. Okay, religious institutions can bind people together. And this may increase trust and cooperation, leading to positive political, social and economic outcomes. Okay, so it can be a, a positive role. Um, obviously, there can be negative effects as, with that as well, but it's not necessarily dependent on which type of religion. Okay, it's more how much it is penetrating into everyday life. Okay, and then also the, the so the last thing on this is value systems. Um, under the cultural development, um, you know, culture factor, cultural factors other than religious beliefs shape development. OK, so, I mean, think of Landis's argument. All right. He's basically saying that there's a culture in Europe that um, there, there's a culture in Europe that promotes this kind of development and this tinkering and constant improvement. All right, so so if you really think about his argument from from the reading we did last week, he's mixing this cultural argument with institutions because he still talks about property rights and um, you know having the ability having having personal property rights and these economic institutions are also important. Okay. Um, you know, And then other value systems, so some examples the book gives is like giving thought to the future, so maybe the propensity to save and defer gratification, not going in debt, uh, work ethic, as I talked about earlier, that could be related to religion, um, and then individualism versus collectivism, so individualism, you're accountable and you're responsible for your own being, not for everyone around you. Okay, so this is other ways that that scholars have tried to explain why development happens. Okay, different values. And I think the Landis argument um, spells out that type of an argument or this type of a theory pretty well. Okay, and then the last group of of theories are what we refer to as system and systems and structures. So we're talking both domestic and international. And really what this emphasizes is that economic outcomes are determined by the fundamental underlying structures in an economy, such as basic forms of production and the system of social classes that this generates. I mean, we think back to the Gilded Age in the United States, and you have these super-rich um. You know, you're talking the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans. You know, your robber barons, and everybody else is kind of poor. Okay, so this would want to analyze: well, why or or how does that affect development? How does the fact that you have this really big inequality, this big gap in inequality, and you have these social classes that the forms of production that a lot of people were working in factories. Okay, a lot of people didn't own, didn't necessarily own their own business. They were working for somebody else. Okay, um, I mean, there's parallels to it today when you think of the big tech companies. They're referred to in economics as the FANGs: F A A N G S. So Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. Um, and just the wealth disparity that we're seeing in a lot of of Western countries. So, so these kinds of theories would analyze, okay, at the basic core of the economy, how is this creating social classes through the way that, um, things are produced. Okay. And they would look at this both domestically. So within a country like the United States or within Brazil or within Japan or China, you know, pick your favorite country. Um, and they would also look at this internationally. So, so looking at this domestically first, all right, this kind of theory would say that economic and political factors worldwide, they're they going to affect all countries. And that basically when you look inside these countries, you've got interest, group, interest groups and other powerful groups that can block development because it might hurt advantages that they currently have. All right. And this is one of the things that the Friedman article goes into is being able to to overcome this. All right. So um, I think Nigeria, if you read the case study on them, talks about the, the resource curse, but how that has promoted incentives for certain groups to block development. All right. And I mean, if we go back to the the example I gave just a minute ago about the robber barons, you know, it took the state, it took Teddy Roosevelt, it took Teddy Roosevelt and his trust busting to break up some of these large monopolies and to give people opportunities and change this social structure underneath. Okay. So that is kind of what The domestic side of the systems and structures, kind of like a Marxist analysis of how the class structure produces certain economic outcomes. But then there's the other side to this, the international side. So you've got international economic structures and class structures. And this is basically saying that the world system is structured in such a way that it favors rich countries and it harms poor countries. Again, this is coming from a Marxist perspective. And so... And breaking that down a little bit. So the world system is structured in a way it favors the rich countries and it harms the poor countries. And this is because the the argument says that the poor countries are dependent on what rich countries want. So they end up providing low wage labor and resources while a small elite are enriched but most stay poor. Okay, maybe this is a better place to bring in the Nigeria case study um, because there's definitely a small elite there staying rich while they remain one of the poorest countries in the world despite having all this oil and having the largest population in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, so what this, you know, this theory, this way of looking at the world, this dependency theory... um, what it led many countries, especially in South America to do, but definitely other places as well, is to turn to import substitution industrialization. Okay, so that's a strategy in the same, it's not the same, but it's, it's a strategy that countries developing later, so 20th century, uh, especially after World War II that they used to try and industrialize, okay? There's also a video on this. So so the two main strategies that countries post-World War II have used is the export-led growth or import substitution industrialization, all right? So make sure that you're checking out those videos. They're not long, like seven minutes or so, um, but it's the same person. He's breaking down how it can be advantageous because Brazil did grow for a while using this, but it also then ran into some serious problems. Um, and then, you know, compare that to the export-led growth. As far as strategies, these aren't theories; these are strategies that um, that countries have used to try and industrialize and try and develop. Okay, so the last theory that comes in is geography and. There's a video on talking about uh, Jared Diamond's book, Germs, Guns, and Steel, and geography is a big part of this. Um, And this theory is that geography's favored rich countries and set back poor countries. Now, there's some some rebuttals to this also in the videos, um, but what your book argues is the real finding and the real indicator from geography is that you need coasts. You can't be a landlocked country. If you look, I mean, you go to the, um, the failed states index or you can look up, uh, you know, poorest countries, most of them tend to be landlocked. The best example off the top of my head I can think of is Afghanistan. All right, there's n- even if they did have a comparative advantage to produce something, there's no waterways, there's no oceans, um, it's mountainous. So they're landlocked with tough terrain, so building roads would be very tricky. But, you know, even going back to last week and talking about some of the advantages Britain had, the navigable waterways, it being an island country, Japan, the same thing, okay? I mean, think about the economic advantage of a place like the United States or like China having giant natural ports in multiple cities, Okay, so coastal advantage versus landlocked. If you're landlocked, you're automatically at a disadvantage. Okay, so that is kind of the last of these theories. Okay, so to sum things up, we've gone through defining what development is. We've talked about the different ways that we can measure development we talked about kind of the sequence of development, where it happened first, and in and, and general how that has has progressed. And then we got into the theories of, of why development happens, talking about economic institutions, the state market debate, political institutions, culture, religion, value systems, um, the systems and structures, uh domestic economic structures and class interests, international economic structure and class interests, and then lastly we talked about uh, geography. So when it comes to answering your Unit 2 writing assignment, make sure to think about these theories. You know, you don't have to use all of them. That would be unrealistic and really not fair. But use the ones that are probably most probable in your mind and think about how this relates to the development of places like the United States and the United Kingdom and how that compares to the development of places like China, India, India, Nigeria, Brazil that were case studies for this week. So take advantage of these case studies in the back of your book because – You know, these two chapters have specific sections on the economic development that will help you answer the question for the week. Um, Also, make sure that you are keeping up on the readings, the videos, and podcasts, and taking the weekly quizzes as well. You know, don't let those build up too much um, because the first five are due by the end of week five. Um, and if questions come up, please let me know, send me an email, please come to my office hours. And if my office hours, which are Tuesdays and Thursdays from two to four, if that doesn't work, shoot me an email, we'll set something else up, uh, set a different time up. Or if you're not in Eugene, we can set some other way to communicate up, but until then have a good one.